podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode 248, 737 MAX Analysis with Ben Bowman, Part 2, Lion Air 610, coming up next in this episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Now here are your co-hosts, Victoria Newville, Eric Crump, Larry Overstreet, Russ Rosleski, Tom Frick, Rick Felty, and Carl Valeri. Welcome to the show about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Today, we continue our special series on the 737 MAX. You know, although this is a general aviation podcast, we really feel that this is an important topic that all aviators can learn some very valuable lessons from. Again, joining me today is Ben Bowman and Justin Ash. To find out more about their background, don't forget to go to the first part of this series. Before we do begin, though, a quick word from our sponsor. Take it away, Larry. Do you want to pursue a career in aviation as a pilot, air traffic controller, mechanic, or dispatcher? Or do you just want to earn that commercial or instrument rating, but you need help paying for it? The Aerospace Scholarships Guide at AviationCareersPodcast.com has over $50 million in available scholarships. Many of these go unused because people don't apply for them. For just $10, you'll receive a full-year subscription to the guide, which is updated monthly. Every scholarship is personally verified to make sure it's accurate and still available. More information is at AviationCareersPodcast.com. Again, please uh, visit our sponsor, AviationCareersPodcast.com. Use the coupon code PAYITFORWARD. It's all one word if you want to receive free one-year access to that scholarships guide that's out there. Quantities do are limited. Uh, the recent update was 32 new scholarships, 18 updates, and another one, scholarships for adults. Also, you can find all the different online courses clicking on the Courses tab on Aviation Careers Podcast where you can get career coaching and all those other courses that we have out there, including the scholarships guide. Anyway, like I said... Uh, uh, today joining us is Justin Ash and Ben. Ben, welcome back to the podcast, my friend. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, this is great. And Justin, also, welcome back. It's always good to hear you. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. Well, guys, we talked a lot about the uh, 737 MAX and the, the systems that are involved in upgrades to the 737 MAX. And uh, it's also interesting to see how things have evolved. So if you want to learn more about that in the 7.3, go back to that first episode. And also we're going to talk a little bit about the MCAS system in depth in that first episode. But what we want to do in this episode is we want to kind of take a deep dive into an accident that we many of us have heard about in the news, and that's Lion Air 610. And, uh, but before we do that, we actually can back up a little bit so, uh, and look at some other instances where the SimCast system has uh, performed differently than I think the pilots had expected. So uh, with that said, Ben, why don't you introduce us to, uh, quickly to the 610 crash, and then we'll go into uh, something, a uh, predecessor to that that didn't cause a crash but should have been a, a bit of a yellow light. Yeah, uh, so Lion Air 10, 610 is uh, the, the flight number uh, that crashed uh, in Southeast Asia. 
And most people have heard of that uh, accident. But uh, when I was really digging into this and trying to uh, get to the root cause of all this, uh, what actually got me really interested was uh, what happened to that exact same aircraft uh, uh, in the flights preceding it uh, all the way back 30 days or so. Um, and uh, so while, like I said, most people have heard of Lion Air 610, not many people have heard of Lion Air 43. So Lion Air 43, uh, honestly, I think hardly anybody's heard of that. So tell us a little bit in a little more detail, because I think most people really don't know about the Lion Air 43 flight. Uh, yeah, and I, I didn't really either. Uh, I knew that there had been issues on the aircraft prior, but I didn't really realize uh, until I uh, read these accident reports uh, just how similar uh, and how many warning flags there should have been uh, on these earlier flights. Um, so just to uh, give a broad overview, the the MCAS system that we're talking about uh, in both of these accidents and both of these flights, the uh, it, it talks very closely with uh, the aircraft's angle of attack sensor. Uh, it's a little vein on the side of the airplane. And uh, that tells what angle the airplane is flying through the air. And it's an interesting uh, thing to look at because on all of these crashes, it had to do with faulty data coming from this uh, angle of attack sensor, the vein. So basically, Lion Air 43 had the exact same mechanical uh, failures uh, and issues as Lion Air 610. Uh, the difference is Lion Air 43 didn't crash and Lion Air 610 did. Uh, so the interesting thing to look at is why. So in looking at that, uh, why that happened, let's first look at specifically uh, so we can get to that, what the actual problem was. So let's talk a little bit about what the captain reported or, or the flight crew reported as far as those other previous flights. So let's back up to 43. And uh, what, what specifically were some of the issues that they had? So the Liner 43 had a lot of uh, what I would call air data failures. Uh, they didn't really know what the problem was. They kept getting various warnings about airspeed and uh, you know, the, the stick shaker for the stalling uh, kept coming on and uh, they didn't know it, but they were getting uh, the MCAS system as well. Uh, so when you have all these airspeed disagrees and altitude disagrees, the airplane doesn't really know how fast or how high uh, it's flying or at what angle it's flying. And uh, so what they did uh, is they reported these problems over the previous 30 days at various points. Well, they swapped out, uh, they repaired the, um, or I'm sorry, they repaired the angle of attack vein multiple times over the previous 30 days and still, they were still getting these issues. They don't know why. Uh, so finally what they did was they replaced it and uh, they swapped out the whole unit uh, and what they didn't know at the time was uh, the way that they repaired the system um, the one of the two techniques uh, or procedures that they used to repair it that was approved uh, didn't or still allowed for a misalignment to re, to occur in the actual unit in the vein itself so a miscalibration uh, and so after they replaced that unit they did fix it 
but now it just always thought it was flying at 30 degrees up. Well, that's an issue. <laughs> that's a, a big <laughs> issue. And, so, and, you know, one of the big issues that we'll see uh, in all of these accidents and flights is, you know, everybody knows about pitot tubes, you know, and you, you would think that, Hey, a pitot tube is a pitot tube, uh, you know, ram air pressure and all that. And it just tells you what your airspeed is. Well, on larger, more complex airplanes where you're trying to be more precise and you're trying to have greater efficiencies uh, and really uh, you're flying uh, closer to the envelope, uh, the edge of the envelope, uh, just because that's where the aircraft is most efficient. Uh, one of the things that the computers do is they don't just take your pitot ram air pressure. They don't just take the pressure going over the fuselage. Uh, they say, hey, you're at a 30 degree up angle. That means that you don't have a straight shot going right into the pitot tube. You, we're going to correct it by 10 knots or 5 knots or 100 feet or 200 feet. Uh, and so when you have all these systems interacting and talking, that's why you get an altitude disagree, for instance, when really it's just your angle of attack indicator. Interesting. So how does this affect the Lion Air 43? And let's just walk us through that so we can understand how uh, they didn't actually have an issue as far as crashing is concerned. So let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, what happened on that flight specifically? They take off and I know there's in some indicated airspeed issue. So why don't you kind of walk me through that? So basically, uh, right before the flight, they replaced that angle of attack indicator and they did a couple other minor housekeeping things associated with that. So then they take off. And immediately upon taking off, they get an airspeed disagree warning. While uh, along with the uh, the stick shaker starts, so the aircraft is warning them, "Hey, you're kind of close to a stall." So the captain uh, was flying the aircraft, which is uh, common uh, in especially on the first flight with a new crew. Generally, the captain will fly the first flight. And uh, so the captain, rightly so, says, hey, first officer, how about you fly the airplane? I have a little bit more experience. I'd like to diagnose this problem uh, and get sort of the 30,000 foot view, if you will. And so when he steps back, he realizes, hey, we have a, an airspeed issue, an altitude issue. Uh, they also had a hydraulic issue, which is kind of relevant, but not really. Uh, and while they're going through uh, the, the normal flight, because keep in mind, the airplane is still flying, uh, they decide to start putting up the flaps. They clean up the aircraft just as you should. You want to get away from the ground, right? Well, the first officer, luckily, uh, is having problems controlling the airplane. And he lets the nose dip a little bit. Another... Uh, benefit of this flight was they had a jump seater sitting in the cockpit with them. The jump seater says, Hey, you're descending, watch out. And the first officer says, Oh shoot. And pulls back the, the yoke to try to uh, climb the aircraft again. He says, Hey, the airplane's kind of heavy. The captain outside of a checklist um, actually just reaches down and turns off the trim system because he notices that the trim is running. Does it really quickly 
before they get into a situation where the airplane is uncontrollable again. So that now, once you deactivate the trim system, it cuts out the uncast system. So now they're just flying, just like any other airplane, except that they have to manually trim. It's actually more like a Piper. So they, once they get to that situation, now they've created time. They are able to diagnose the problem, get the airplane back in trim. They're not fixing the angle of attack indicator issue because they can't, but they've at least cut out the, the, the MCAS system. So in the end, this flight continued with an airspeed disagree, an altitude disagree, uh, a differential pressure on the hydraulic system, which is also caused by uh, the, the angle of attack indicator. Um, and most importantly, with the stick shaker running the entire flight. Oh. And so they, they climb up to altitude and they continue all the way over. Uh, but they landed safely. And part of that reason is because they acted so quickly. So they actually took this the whole way with the stick shaker running. That was a long flight with the stick shaker running. Uh, I mean, I probably would have turned around and said, I'm, I'm not dealing with this. <laughs> I would have been gone. I would have been back at the airport. There's no way. And I just want to make a note of it. Uh, my Piper does have electric trim. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Mine does. doesn't. <laughs> you know, it, it's 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 so it's so strange. I I I can't see myself continuing like that. But in the end, I wasn't there, and so I, I can understand. Uh, you know, there's always a, a bunch of factors. They felt that the airplane was controllable and safe to fly, and so they continued. My my issue. Um, that, that I have a hard time wrapping my head around with is less that um, and more what happened after the flight uh, and what was in the maintenance logbook. Um, you know, Carl, you mentioned, or you, you asked a, a really good question earlier uh, in this series about what are the indications of the MCAS system? What are the indications of the angle of attack indicator in the cockpit? Importantly, there are none. Uh, you know, just to, uh, for a quick point of clarity, the angle of attack indicator shows your angle into the air, not necessarily towards the ground. So you, even though the, the captain's side thought that they were climbing at 30 degrees, the attitude indicator, the gyro is still showing level or you know, whatever it was in comparison to the first officer. So it's not like, oh yeah, it's, it's all blue. There's no ground in my attitude indicator. There's, there's no real way for them to see that. Uh, so, you know, what, what is something that we've always learned to, to talk with our mechanics uh, when we're writing something in a logbook or telling about a discrepancy? You don't diagnose the problem. You just say what you see was wrong. <laughs> Unless and you want to piss off a mechanic. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> I've gotten yelled at way too many times. Now my write-ups are in up. Uh, but, I think an know, important part of that too, though, is exactly what you're saying. However, I'm just thinking outside the box here. You know, we go back to the fact that the flight continued, right? With a stick shaker going the entire time all these other issues and they don't turn around. 
And I have to ask the question, did that downplay the severity of the problems? If they would have turned around, gone back to the original point of departure and said, hey, this all happened, the airplane was unflyable uh, outside of us overriding these systems. Would they have taken a closer look rather than getting to the destination? And now it's, yeah, we got it here. It flew whatever was said. I don't want to put words in someone's mouth, but it just seems to me like too another reason that if something's not right with your airplane, safely get it back on the ground, diagnose the problem. Because I have to believe that maybe they didn't look at it quite as close because the flight was completed. Yeah, well, that's a that's a good point. Uh, not that we want to get too much in the analysis of that flight, but but yes, I think that is a great point as far as you know what was going through their heads and did this contribute possibly to to a further accident. Yeah, ben? and I think you know we're going to go into human factors a little bit more later in the series, but uh, you know the 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 big thing that uh, I want to say is that they they wrote up the disagrees for the airspeed and altitude, and they wrote up the hydraulic issue. The one thing they didn't write up was the stick shaker, and that ended up being the critical piece of information that might have saved six ten. So they wrote up, again, the indicated airspeed disagree, uh, the angle of attack, I think it was, or but not the differential pressure. Is that right? No, they, they wrote up the uh, airspeed disagree, the uh-huh. altitude disagree, okay. and the, the differential pressure uh, light. But not now, the shaker. Not the shaker. Okay. Now, there are no angle of attack indicators on that aircraft. So the only indication that there was something wrong with the angle of attack indicator was the stick shaker. That was their only indication. And by gotcha. not writing that up, what happened before 610 is they just flushed the system. Then they did a pressure test on the ground. Everything seemed fine because there was nothing wrong with the system. It was all the, uh, the angle of attack indicator. So then what happens next? I mean, now we come to flight 610. Basically, the same thing. Uh, through the takeoff roll, it was exactly the same. Uh, soon, there were minor disagreements on airspeed and things like that, but nothing that you would necessarily notice while careening down the runway at 150 miles an hour. Uh, so they take off. Uh, captain is flying, and they immediately get the stick shaker, and the airspeed disagrees, and the altitude disagrees, and all sorts of uh, uh, unhappiness is going on. So what they do is uh, the captain continues to fly and starts asking for checklists. I mentioned earlier, we're going to go into uh, human factors issues a little bit later, but basically the captain decides to keep flying. Captain has thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds of hours. And so he has a lot of experience flying the airplane. Uh, Once they start putting the, uh, the, the flaps up, now they start running into the MCAS system because as soon as those flaps go up, the MCAS operates. And while the captain is trying to diagnose the problem and fly the airplane while commanding the first officer to uh, you know, keep them close to the airport or keep them down lower, get block altitudes, things like that, the airplane is continuously trimming. Now, the captain, having a lot more hand-flying experience and uh, uh, just a lot more flight time in general, 
it, it becomes automatic at a certain point. You start feeling pressure on the oak, you trim. Pressure on the oak, trim. Pressure on the oak, trim. Uh, although not on the Airbus. But <laughs> on the 737, that's what you do. And you do it without even thinking because you're so inoculated to the sound of the trim wheel. Um, and they never disconnect the uh, the stabilizer trim. Uh, it's, they're actually following rabbit holes trying to uh, figure out what these warnings were doing uh, and why they were getting this. Now, at a certain point, the captain got frustrated with not being able to uh, find the right checklist or diagnose the right problem. And he does probably what he should have done earlier, maybe, but also uh, what ended up being uh, a big mistake uh, or one of the big contributing factors into the uh, fact that they crashed and he hands the aircraft to the first officer. He doesn't communicate, Hey, it keeps wanting to trim down for some reason. It keeps wanting to push the nose down. I don't know why, but here's the airplane. He doesn't say that. He just says, okay, your controls. Let me, let me try to find this checklist. Well, the first officer did not have as much flying experience. You know, he had quite a bit of time, uh, but most of it was flying 737s and most of it was on the autopilot. And uh, because of some CRM issues, he didn't really speak up and the aircraft kept trimming nose down, trimming nose down, trimming nose down. First officer tried to correct, but didn't really have the experience to know, hey, I have to trim five seconds backwards. That seems excessive because it is because you're out or you're, you're, you're taking out an excessively poor trim uh, input. So at one point, the MCAS would activate for five seconds or so nose down and he would correct with a second of nose up trim. Well, this is a problem that's clearly going to keep getting worse, keep getting worse. Uh, at one point, uh, they, the first officer was experiencing over a hundred pounds of uh, pressure on the yoke. So you can imagine trying to hold a hundred pounds, uh, even in both arms. I, I don't think I can do that for very long. Uh, I'm sure Justin will say I can't do that for very long. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so at a certain point, it just is unsustainable. Nobody can hold 100 pounds for more than a couple minutes at least, even in a stressful adrenaline-soaked situation. So they eventually just lose control. The airplane uh, starts descending. They don't, their arms are too tired. They can't pull back anymore and they end up uh, impacting uh, the ocean, you know, way, way, way out of speed uh, and completely uncontrollable. So, so I was just going to ask a quick question just to clarify for my, the MCAS system is not activated when the flaps are extended, i.e. you're in takeoff configuration? Correct. So, uh, so, once so it's not, and then as soon as you bring the flaps up, the system basically turns on and starts doing its thing. Correct. Now, if I was to, if I were to put the flaps back in the takeoff position, would that deactivate the system again? It would. It would. Um, okay. I was and, just, I just want to know kind of the logic. Yeah. And we actually will, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, Cause one, the, the next crew did actually try that. So then, so they also compared to, to, compared to the last flight did not 
disengage the uh, stab trim, was it? That uh, or the uh, yeah, the stab trim. Yeah, they they didn't disengage that because uh, for the the captain, trimming was just so thoughtless and natural to him that he didn't didn't even realize he was doing it. Perhaps, you know, there's no real way to know, but, uh, and then the first officer didn't have enough experience to know, Hey, there's something wrong with the trim. So they never tried to turn off the trim. So again, the, uh, we, we go back to two different situations. One, uh, was a, a dramatically different outcome uh, for a few reasons, but uh, again, pointing back to this MCAS system. Uh, but what we're doing is we're looking at this accident and trying to to glean some information as to what caused this, and and that uh, being the MCAS system possibly not understanding it and understanding uh, the actual solution to the problem. Uh, so we're, we have a lot of other discussion as far as checklists and things like that and some other human factors but specifically in this this 610 is there anything else about this accident that we should talk about before moving on to the next one like uh were there anything else that that was a glaring difference between say even 43 and 610 or was it just simply they uh just didn't recognize that issue well i think there were a couple glaring changes between the two um you know, I would start with expectation bias. Hey, this airplane flew in. They had some issues with the altitude and airspeed disagree, and they were fine. Uh, so you have that expectation bias that, hey, they dealt with it. I can deal with it. Um, the other glaring difference uh, is they didn't turn off the stab trim, uh, the stabilizer trim. Uh, and I don't want to minimize either the fact that uh, not only did the captain not hand the flying over earlier to the first officer. But also they didn't have a jump seater and anybody who's sat in a simulator, even uh, watching or sat on a jump seat, watching two pilots do their thing. You see a whole lot more from that seat back there than you do from the cockpit uh, from the flight deck chairs, you know, and uh, as I, I, I wonder what would have happened had there been a jump seater uh, sitting on that jump seat that day. Yeah, perspective yeah. changes, and you, you see a lot more. That's for sure, right, Justin? Yeah, yeah. You end up in a situation. Yeah, exactly. I mean, sitting in the back, um, I've spent more time than I care to share in the back of simulators watching, and you don't tunnel vision as much. Would be the easiest way I could put it. You don't. When you're flying, you tend to get focused. When you're in the back you tend to open your vision up a little bit more and maybe see just a little bit more. So I agree. I wouldn't minimize the fact of not having a jump seater. And I wouldn't, I also, which I don't think we did is minimize the importance of CRM. You don't ever hand an airplane over to somebody that is not flying the way they would expect without letting them know that, you know, even when we teach in the 121 environment, 135, 90, whatever your aviation, uh, whatever part of aviation you're in, you should be, if you're transferring controls to someone or in a crew environment, it should be, hey, we're on this heading, we're climbing, descending, we're level, so that they understand the status of the aircraft when they're taking over the controls. So just transferring it that way um, is just a big CRM breakdown, in my opinion, because if he knew that was coming, maybe they would have asked a few more questions, which could have led them somewhere too. Well, not just that, but anytime you're handed over the airplane, uh, it always takes you a second just to sort of catch your bearings. Uh, and and 
in a system uh, or in a situation where the system is actively trimming against you, that two or three seconds of, hey, the airplane's kind of acting funny, now got a lot worse. Uh, you know, when the captain handed the airplane over, uh, they were only ever getting to about 30 pounds on the of back force required on the yoke. Um, you know, a few seconds later, it was all the way to over 100 pounds. Uh, and so, you know, with not really getting enough information and sort of being thrown into, here's the airplane, you deal with it. Uh, you know, I would have thought, oh, maybe the airplane's just like super heavy for some reason. There's something wrong with the trim system because it's already 30 pounds. So if it goes from 30 to 100 pounds, well, I mean, it just got worse. It didn't create a new problem. Whereas I think if I were given an airplane right after the flaps come up and uh, now all of a sudden the airplane starts trimming like crazy, I'm going to try to get back into a normal trim situation because I know it was there once. I know it's possible to, to have a neutral trim. So I'll try to get back. So Ben, you know, this has been great uh, looking at this accident, the 610, but also importantly, Lion Air 43 that many of us have not really looked at uh, because of the fact we, we may not have known about it until this crash and, and even in some of the analysis. And this has been great, the deep dive that you went into on this and some of the opinions that were brought forth were important. Again, the reason we're doing this is so that we can learn from the actual mistakes of others uh, and also we can learn uh, a little bit about the process process of of certifying an aircraft and things to look out for if we're flying a new airplane, that type of There's all sorts of things that we can learn from this whole process and also the investigations. But coming up next, we're going to actually dive into another uh, crash that uh, is the Ethiopian 302. And we're going to learn a little bit more about the MCAS system and what happened there, going into some analysis uh, with both Ben and Justin. Uh, but uh, if you want to hear more about this, uh, as far as the intro, go back to the first in the series. Also, we're going to have links to all those different uh, analysis and, and the both of the incident and the crash that happened and the future episodes. We'll make sure we put some of those links down there. Ben and Justin, this has been great. I can't wait till uh, the next episode till we dive deep into the next uh, next incident in the crash. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for having me as well. Always enjoy it. Well, folks, uh, if you enjoy the podcast and you, or you have questions, please go to the bottom and send us uh, the email. Also, go to stuckmikeavcast.com and the contact page. Uh, we'd love to hear your feedback about this. If you want to see some more of these type of or listen to some more of these episodes as far as, uh, you know, analysis of certain crashes and deep dives into this so that maybe we can learn more uh, about the accidents and incidents. But uh, I really appreciate your listening. Safe flying. We'll talk to you on the next episode. And upcoming is uh, the third part of this series. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production. Thank you.